Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, whether here or online, my name is Stephen, and I really love serving as one of the leaders here. But before I get stuck into the preach this morning, you know, the biblical idea of a church is not limited to, but definitely includes this kind of gathering. And uh, one of the metaphors for the church is that we are the body of Christ and that God has placed every single one of us in the body. He has equipped us in a certain way with gifts and talents and abilities that He wants to empower so that you can serve the community outside there through the life of this church, but also so that you may serve one another. And part of our role as leaders is to help you find where God has placed you and even in COVID times, um, yes, some of our ministries have taken a back seat simply because logistically we haven't been able to do them. However, I just want to put this out to you that in order to make Sunday happen, we need Riversiders to serve Riversiders. And um, if God places it on your heart that you want to go and be a strength and a support to the kids' ministry or to our setup teams or to our welcome team in the morning, Every single one of those jobs make it possible for us to be here and really to clear the path so that when we do get to God's Word and a time of worship, that there's nothing that has frustrated us and we can really enjoy our time together and ultimately enjoy God. So please, would you respond uh, in any of our communication? There is some form of respond to an email address, admin at riversidecommunity.org.za. Respond there, find us on the website, come speak to me, come speak to Gene, uh, Sean or Jody or anyone, and uh, we will plug you in and just to help this thing called church happen. Now, we have just been through an incredible series called A Beautiful Collision where we've been looking at what God did in Jesus on the cross from a number of different angles. And I want to just highlight that series to you as one of high importance. That it is a kind of series you go back and revisit so that your own understanding can go from here to here to here and your insight grows and as a consequence, your love of God and what He's done grows. Now we've just come out of that series and we've tried to make it also as practical as possible, but today is a bit of a standalone sermon, but also it really is one of the practical outworkings of truly understanding what God has done for me and for my family and for my neighbours and for the south of Joburg and for our nation and for the nations around us. If we become convinced of that, today's message has to be one of the ways God works in and through our lives. Now, when I was a, a student at BTC, I had the privilege of going back there a number of weeks ago and preaching there. Um, I, I never thought I'd feel this, but now you're preaching to a bunch of uh, students who are being trained in theology and they are being trained to critique sermons. And all of a sudden, for the first time in a very long time, I felt the pressure. But in many ways, it was just awesome being back in a place that is so formative in my life. And I think back to my years of theolo theological studies very fondly. I spent four years there, studying there full time, growing in my uh, kind of stewardship of uh, what I was doing at my church. 
And um, I just loved the idea that I could stop and pause. I just finished working, studying, and then working as a geologist. And God was growing these things in my heart, and I could give it my full attention. And we could ask questions. And, and it, we weren't just being limited to little sound bites of theology and doctrine and practical understanding of our faith, but we could massage this stuff into our hearts. We could ask every question. We could go down every rabbit hole, and I loved it. But one of the things that happened to me and happens to many, not only theological students, but uh, students, is what is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And we're going to have a graph on the screen here. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a graph to try and help us understand why some people feel way more competent than they ought to. All right, so it goes something like this. On the left, you can see a a peak. The y-axis, if you remember your high school maths, is a level of confidence. And the x-axis is our level of competence And really what that first peak is trying to tell us is that sometimes we are exposed to a little bit of information, but we believe now I know everything there is to know about this. And so armed with a little bit of good information, my confidence goes into arrogance. I start to speak down to everybody around me because I know everything. Now, we've seen that on social media during COVID-19, right? We've been exposed to some small medical facts or something about some conspiracy. And now I know everything there is to know about the vaccine or about some medical understanding or about the conspiracy. My confidence goes sky high. No one can talk me out of my position. Yes? Okay. But then what happens? Okay, unfortunately, some people get stuck there. What ought to happen is I I grow and I begin to understand the world that I didn't know. There is so much more that I don't know than I do know. And that humbles me as part of my growth. And over time, as we move towards the right of this graph, I, I start to grow in my experience I start to grow in my understanding. I start to grow in my competence. And step by step, week by week, month by month, year on year, I start to grow in my confidence. But it is now, excuse me, a legitimate confidence. Until at some point on the right-hand side, I do know a lot about this particular subject, whatever it may be. And I have a sense of humble confidence. I remember the irritating guy I was a number of years ago. I've now come to realize that even at the right of that graph, there's still so much more that I don't know. But yes, I have some confidence and some experience and I can speak with confidence in that area. Now I want to show you how that worked out for me at BTC. I met my wife as a first year student and I was at the top of that graph on the left hand side. And I knew everything there was to know about theology. And now I had someone who I could trap across a table from me and pour my wisdom and knowledge into the sponge who's going to be only too happy to suck up everything that I've got to say. Can anyone predict how that worked out? What confused me was why this person was so 
unwilling to receive from my brilliance until I realized that I had to have a bit of a drop off on the right hand side of that. And one of the things I learned that even in Bible study and theological studies, it's not simply about the head knowledge and the understanding that we have and can even grow in, even to a point of high levels of competence. But there is something to be said about learning about relationships and timing and empathy and understanding where the church is at and what is God wanting to say to the church now? What is the best word for the church now? Or if I'm speaking to my wife or my kids, what is the most appropriate thing for me to say now and to be sensitive to that and to know this person and to be sensitive to God's leading? And that is as much of a learning curve as the data that goes between my ears. But maybe you've also experienced this Dunning-Kruger effect when it comes to sharing your faith. Because people like me have stood up on platforms like this telling you, rightly so, that we've got the truth. That the Bible is true, it is God's true word to us. And rightly understood, we understand His truth, it transforms us. But not only do we have some truth between pages, we've got the way, the truth, and the life. And so I'm just being filled up with truth, filled up with an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And then I go and I try and share my faith with these people around me. And I cannot understand why they're not willing to suck up all the truth that I know. And so today is going to maybe move some of us past that, past that first peak of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And yes, on one hand, Craig and I and the leaders here are passionate about us growing in wisdom, growing in understanding. But part of that is not just knowing about these black words on these white pages, but also relationally knowing when is the right time to share my faith? What is the best way to share my faith? How can I think empathetically and wisely about where this person is at and their heart cry? And maybe that can position me better to share my faith. So that's what today is about. We're going to be looking at a verse that you've heard me talk about a number of times. But as far as I know, we've never stopped and paused and really done a deep dive on this verse. The verse is 1 Peter 3 verses 15. If you don't know where that is and you've got one of these Old school Bibles, just go to the back of the Bible and turn until you find second and then first Peter 3 verses 15. And this is the verse that we're going to park off on this morning. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And so I believe as we unpack this verse, we're going to get to the heart of the why, the when, the where, the what, and the how of sharing our faith. So let's start at the beginning and look at the why. It says here, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. I am 100% convinced that the thing that should drive us ought to be at every point in our lives the loving experience of Christ's lordship in my life and heart. 
if I am motivated by anything else, ultimately, yes, we can have other good motives, but my primary why, the fuel in my engine has to be that I have experienced the loving Lordship of Christ in my heart. Maybe some of you have seen the video or read the book by a guy called Simon Sinek who talks about the power of the wire. And he tries to get leaders of organizations and churches to understand that if you can get your people to understand the why, everything else will fall naturally into place. Get the why right and you've got an organization on targets. I was reading a quote by a leadership guru called Peter Drucker who said, I love this quote. He said, if you want to convince men to build ships, don't pass out shipbuilding manuals. Don't organize them into labor groups and handouts. Wood. That's the how. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. That's the why. And you get the why and they will happily build ships. And if we get the why, if we are personally fueled by the loving Lordship of Christ in my heart, then everything else should fall into place, including a desire to share my faith. And so sometimes it is not a problem with the training. Sometimes it is not a problem with my knowledge or not a problem with the book I read. Sometimes the problem is I'm not primarily motivated by the Lordship of Christ and the experienced Lordship of Christ in my heart. You know, when I was an early Christian, and especially as I was getting into some theology and finding it very intellectually stimulating, started to enjoy Paul and started to enjoy going down the many rabbit holes that he presents to us in Scripture. But one of the caricatures that grew of Paul in my mind was a kind of abrasive guy. That yes, he was intelligent. Yes, he was theologically equipped. Yes, he was passionate and loved the Lord. But I don't know if I would have invited him to a bride my house. In my imagination, he was just so motivated that he had no people skills. He was just there to point out sin and point out heresy. Yes, for Jesus. But I don't know if I would have liked him. But over the last few years, and I have mentioned this before, I've realized that that caricature of Paul was wrong. And I've come to see Paul through the lens of being Pastor Paul. The Paul who loved his church. But not only loved his church, a Paul who was motivated by the why of this verse. A Paul who first and foremost had experienced the loving Lordship of Christ. And because it wasn't only head knowledge, it was something that he had lived and breathed. He had tasted and seen that the Lord was good. And that is what ultimately drove him, his experience of God's love and his desire to see others experience God's love. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says, guys, I want you to be empowered, I'm paraphrasing, by the Holy Spirit that you can even begin to know that God's love is so dimensionless. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, I pray that God would give you the spirits of wisdom and revelation, wisdom and revelation, so that I can be a clever Christian. No, so that you can know Him better. Now, whenever the Bible speaks about knowledge, it is not just head knowledge. It is an experienced knowledge. 
And I apologize to the vegans and the vegetarians for this illustration, but it's not enough to know about the steak, to know how it's cooked and the cut that it came from, how long it's been aged, how it's been prepared. We've got to eat the steak. And who's going to make a better evangelist for steak? The person who knows the data or the person who's eaten the steak? Paul didn't only know about God in Jesus Christ. He knew and was fueled and driven by the loving Lordship of Jesus Christ. That for him was his why. And we need to lay down all secondary whys for the sake of this why. And when it comes to sharing our faith, I want to talk about two inadequate whys that so often trip us up. The first one is I'm driven by the idea that I am right. Now, is the Bible true 100%? Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? Oh, 100%. Do we have access to the truth? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Wonderful, beautiful, amazing truth. But ought I to be driven by showing everyone else how right and clever I am? No. Are there going to be times where I'm going to highlight our truth? Oh, yes. But it has to be fueled and motivated by the love that I've experienced of Christ's Lordship in my heart. So we can speak the truth in love. Jesus came full of grace and truth, right? So it's an inadequate motivation to be motivated by I am right. And sometimes even one step further is some people are motivated by you are wrong. And they literally get a kick out of showing everybody else where they are wrong. Now, does that mean we never highlight inadequacies in other worldviews or other religions with great wisdom and patience and love? Of course not. Does that mean we don't seek to understand why God is ultimately and most truthfully expressed through Jesus Christ and all other worldviews and all other religions are at best skewly right and wrong and at worst completely utterly wrong? Of course not. But if I am motivated by the kind of arrogance that all I want to do is show you how you're wrong, that's cruel and pharisaical. It does not express the love that ought to be truly motivating me. So that's the why. Let's move on to, sorry, one last quote in this. And I love this quote by Steve Finestalt. He says, you won't become fluent in the gospel if the gospel isn't really good news to you yet. And so I need to be motivated by the truth and the reality of the gospel in my heart. That's the why. Let's talk about the when. This verse says, always be prepared. Now, I wish this verse said, after you've done your four-year degree, then be prepared to share your faith. Or after you've gone and over some of the nonsense in your life, then be prepared. Or after you've matured for a while and you've started to see more evidence of God in your life, then be prepared to share the gospel Is this verse saying, mature Christians be prepared or pastors and elders be prepared? No, it's everyone. This is, by the way, a command, not a suggestion that every believer ought to be equipped and prepared to share their faith. 
Now, I don't want to make this sermon about the book that I wrote, but some of you may know that after an apologetic series we did at our church a number of years ago, I took a bit of a sabbatical and a bit of that time, or a lot of that time I used as a writing sabbatical and wrote this book called The Reason for Everything. But it wasn't just for the sake of writing a book. The reason for writing the book was exactly this, to equip everyone to be prepared. Now there are some resources out there. In fact, there are many resources out there that are many, many times better than my resource. But as I went through my Christian journey and as people came to me with some questions, I would give them a podcast, I'd give them a book, I'd give them a resource. And most people came back to me saying, Stephen, I don't understand any of that. It is way too difficult for me to understand. And so I said, this verse is not only written to people who are studying philosophy or people who have some vested interest in wrestling with these issues theoretically. This verse says that everybody needs to be equipped. And in my opinion, there's a huge vacuum helping the average riversider be equipped to do this thing called sharing our faith. And so I said to myself, well, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna be what I call an apologetics bottom feeder. There's the guys at the top and we're gonna work all the way down until we get to Steve. All right, and I'm gonna write a book so that the person who is asking you questions, who is maybe not studying philosophy, or your child who comes to you with questions, or as you are wrestling with these very same questions, that you are equipped to deal with these things. Because this verse is written to every single one of us. So that's the when. Let's talk about the where. It says, always be prepared. Always be prepared. That means I'm going to work. I'm going to invest. I'm going to put in some groundwork now before the questions come my way, before the crisis of faith comes my way. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. So where do we do this? Do we do this on Sundays like this? Oh, yes, absolutely. Do we do this in our life groups? 100%. But defending our faith and talking about our faith as people engage some of the difficult questions of life and faith is not only for the stage platform on Sunday mornings or for life group on Wednesday evenings. Where do we do this? We do it everywhere. Because there are people everywhere and we have neighbours everywhere. So we do this in our home. We do this around the dinner table. We do this with our kids, sitting on the bed with them, talking them through these issues, praying with them through these issues. We do this in our workplace. Because I can guarantee you, your colleagues are struggling with some of these questions, either as Christians and they don't know how to get over it, or it's a stumbling block to them becoming a Christian And you have an opportunity to always be prepared. So that not only at all times, but in all places, you have the why and the when and the where. So what is it that we're going to be doing? Well, when this verse talks about giving an answer, it's the Greek word apologia, which is the word from which we get our English word apologetics, which is a strange word because it sounds like I'm apologizing for my faith. Now, giving a reason is not about apologizing for my faith. 
In fact, maybe the ESV gives a better translation of this when it says, always be prepared to give a defense of your faith. Because that is what apologetics is. The art and the science of defending the faith. You see, one of my holy discontents, which has driven so much of my preaching, which has driven writing that book, is seeing way too many people, be they people in the more public sphere or people in my life, who lose faith either completely or drift away from the faith over issues for which there are great answers, but they haven't been exposed to them. Or I've seen people that others have gone to them, be it their children or be it their neighbours, and they've had very difficult questions, and the question has capsized the Christian's faith because they haven't had sufficient answers for that question. Or I've seen people who don't want to come to faith because they have this assumption that Christianity means leave your brain at the door. Don't ask the tough questions because they think we say, just believe, don't ask. And all of that is wrong. And I'm driven by the conviction that if more of us were equipped, if more of us were prepared, at all times, in all places, there would be a net growth in the kingdom of God. Yes? Now, maybe it's not for the sake of your faith. Maybe you're happy to believe and you feel like you're on solid ground and you're not too concerned with some of the insides and outs of all of these questions. But I can guarantee you, if you've got children, the questions are coming your way. What are you going to say then? I can guarantee you, your neighbours have these questions and your colleagues have these questions. So let's, as Paul says to Timothy, let's be prepared in season and out of season. Now this verse also assumes that people are actually asking us questions. Now, what causes someone to ask a question? Now, here's what I've always hoped would happen, but up to this point in time, it has never happened. No one has seen me walking through the Glen or the Mall of the South and has thought to themselves, wow, that guy looks like an intelligent guy. He looks like he knows everything, so I'm going to come to him with all my deep questions of life and faith. The problem with that is, that's generally not how it works. And secondly, I just don't look very intelligent. But what this verse does say is that people are going to be coming to us with questions. And here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that we've received, again, that first peak of that graph, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of training, and people come with a question that either has something to do with or nothing to do with our 10 prepackaged answers, and all we do is hand them and regurgitate our 10 prepackaged answers, nothing to do with their question. And so we need to know how to answer the questions they are asking. And so if they do have a question about the reliability of the Bible, we need to know how to answer them. If they do have a question about a detail in the Bible that either confuses them or makes them just wonder what this Christian thing is about, we need to be prepared. If they do have a question that leads to revealing some of their faulty presuppositions, we need to know how to engage wisely in that moment. 
Does that mean we need to know everything? And the answer is no. So I want to give you, I don't want to give you a way out of growing and preparing yourself, but I do want to give you two acceptable answers in these moments. The first one is like this. I don't know, but I'll find out. The second one is almost the same. I don't know, but I'm going to help you find out. As we commit to journeying with this person who may be in a very real crisis of faith, or this journey may open up a real opportunity for real faith in Christ. All right, so let's talk about the what. It says here, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for all the cleverness that you have. No, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I've already mentioned that people don't just walk up to me and ask me questions unless they know me. But outside of that, it doesn't happen. So what is gonna generate curiosity? My intelligence? Well, according to this verse, it talks about one of the most magnetic properties of the gospel. That because of the truth of the gospel and because I am living and experiencing the loving Lordship of Christ in my heart, the Lord gives me a supernatural hope. And as people witness my life, they're gonna witness a hope that is foreign to them. And that is gonna create curiosity in them. And from there, they're gonna come and ask questions. Basically, it's gonna be something along the lines of, oh wow, I mean, we're all going through COVID-19. You're also going through COVID-19, but for some reason, there's a buoyant hope that you have that I don't have. Or I've lost my job, but you've also lost your job. But for some reason, you've got a supernatural hope that maybe I wouldn't give it that term, but I'm interested in why you are so buoyant and joyful in life. Or you're also going through a tough time. You've also been through a hard relational experience. You've also lost a child. And yes, you've grieved like the rest of us, but there's a hope in you that is foreign to me. This is an outcome of the magnetic power of the gospel. Remember that 1 Peter, this verse that we're reading from, is written to Christians who are being persecuted physically for their faith. This is a far cry from living your best life now. Read between the lines. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes this. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. These are persecuted Christians. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, your life and your hope and glorify God on the day He visits us. Guys, I don't know if you've noticed, but Christianity is on trial. And Christianity right now is accused of not only being wrong, but doing wrong. And I don't just mean those Christians who endorse apartheid or those in Christians who endorse chattel slavery in the South of America. We're talking about even believing what I believe today is not only seen as hate speech. In some quarters, it is seen as violence simply for believing what I believe. And so we right now are in an environment where we are regularly being accused 
of doing wrong. So what is the answer? Shout louder? Get more vicious on social media? No. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and your hope and the outcome of the reality of Christ in your life. And they too may in turn give glory to God on the day He visits us. So always be ready to give an answer for the hope, for the hope that we have. Finally, let's talk about the how. Guys, we can do everything right up to this point. We can set apart Christ as Lord of my life. I can enjoy God. I can enjoy the fruit of the gospel in my life. I can be equipped. I can be prepared. I can uh, try and follow the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. I can try and live a life that is fueled by hope. But if I tee everything up, but do not do the last how, it's a swing and a miss. Because it says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, for those of you who are not on social media, do yourself a favor and keep it that way. Because for some reason, social media, especially this time of highly aggravated Uh, 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 difficulties in life and political challenges and economic challenges and just the access to social media and uh, this COVID-19 and everything else going around, it has brought out the worst in humanity. And for some reason, regardless of the issue, it is no longer viable to hold a rational position. You have to be fueled by hate on the left or the right. And I am embarrassed to say that I've seen Christians doing the same thing. This verse says so clearly, if God's loving lordship is true in your hearts, one of the ways that you're going to express this is that when you talk about your faith and the true hope that you have, you're going to do it with gentleness and respect. Husbands and wives, think about those times you've been in an argument and you just know that you are right. You know you're right. And maybe you are. So you haven't messed up on the facts or your memory of whatever the experience is, but you haven't communicated this with gentleness and respect. You slept on the couch that night, right? It's not enough to be right. We need to know how to speak about our faith. That is rational. That does provide so much that the world needs in and through Jesus. But we need to know how to do it with gentleness and respect. Randy Alcorn, pastor and author, he said it this way. He said, I love this quote. We need to build bridges of grace that bear the weight of truth. And that takes time and wisdom. Paul says it similarly in Colossians 4 verses 6. He says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 
Again, he's talking into the context where people are coming to us with questions about our faith. And he says, one of the things you need to keep in mind is that your conversation needs to be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Andy Stanley says, so often our conversations are full of salt and seasoned with grace. So in the name of making this so practical for us, I want to give you some practical thoughts as you engage in the questions of those around you and the how specifically. And the first one is this, be curious. What I mean by that is ask them questions. How is it that you came to believe this? What is it, what happened in your life that caused you to struggle with this? What is it that your particular group or religion teaches about this? Don't just be locked and loaded with your prepackaged answers. Start with questions. Ask genuine questions. And just here's a little bit of insight. Look for the question behind the question. And that usually takes time. I read a book on coaching once and it talks about when you're dealing with a person that you're trying to help, it usually takes six or seven times of asking to actually get to the roots of the question. And so often people's obstacles are not motivated by an intellectual challenge, but by an emotional one. And so ask questions. Seek to understand before you seek to be understood. Or as James puts it, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Number two, be attentive. In other words, listen. When you ask your questions, don't just tap your watch in your mind so that I can get to pouring out my wisdom on them. Listen to their questions. Why is it that they're struggling with this? Why is it that they're coming from this angle and not that angle? I'm really curious as to what has caused such anger or doubt in their life and heart. So truly be attentive to the answers. Number three, be prayerful. Do not trust your intellect, trust God. And so I want to encourage you, I forget who made this quote, but speak to God about men before you speak to men about God. Trust the power of His gospel. Trust the power and the leading of His Holy Spirit. So be prayerful for your kids or your parents or your siblings or your neighbors or your colleagues. Regularly bring them before the Lord. And you know what? You can also be prayerful in the moment. As I'm listening, I'm also having a conversation with God. God, I don't know what I'm doing. Lord, help. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me the strength to keep my mouth shut. But I'm actually engaging with this person in the presence of God in prayer. Number four, be quiet in brackets sometimes. When Jesus was put on trial, with pilots, He knew when the best answer was no answer at all. And if you think through some of the arguments that you've had with friends or family, 
So often if it is made worse by the knee-jerk reaction where we are seeking not to provide good answers, but we're seeking primarily to justify and defend ourselves. And that is just an innate human quality. And so sometimes instead of just defending ourselves and justifying our position, sometimes it is best to just keep quiet and listen. And finally, number five, be committed. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Sometimes we think that conversion happens 100% of the time like it did with Paul. He was heading one way, he encountered Jesus and his life was forever changed from that moment. But I think most of our conversions are more like the Apostle Peter who had glimpses of Christ's Lordship He came to Jesus with all the best intentions and then he slipped and failed. Sometimes he came in with all the passion but just showed how little he truly understood about who Jesus was. On one hand, Jesus, I'll go with you to Jerusalem. I'm willing to die for you. Five seconds later, he's denying that he even knew Jesus to a slave girl. And somehow through those three steps forward, two steps back, Jesus still did a miraculous turnaround in Peter's life. But it took time. I think back to some of the things that I have rightly needed to change my mind on in Scripture. And I can promise you, maybe because I'm so stubborn and I need such a high burden of proof, that it is, not, it is never one sermon that changed my mind. It was dozens, hours of prayer, hours of study, people speaking on this issue until at times I would reluctantly lay down what I did believe for the sake of what I ought to believe about this thing. Why is it going to be any difference with the people in your life who are struggling with faith? And to be committed to the long-term journey. Think marathon, not sprint. Can God step in in a moment and open someone's heart and eyes and turn them around for His glory? Absolutely. And let's pray for that and be prepared for that. But just because this person wasn't saved by your brilliance in the first five seconds doesn't mean God is not at work. And so I might get the order wrong. We've spoken about the why. The when, the where, the what, and the how. This is something that every single one of us needs to be prepared in. And so I want to pray for a willingness to become someone who is prepared. That every single one of us becomes a learner in this. It's the word for disciple. That every single one of us starts to take steps forward. Maybe it is for the sake of your own faith. But maybe it's for the sake of the faith of the people around you. But I also want to pray for the empowering and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because we do not trust our own abilities in this, we trust God. So let us pray. Father, I pray for anyone here who is struggling to connect with this sense of I'm being motivated primarily by the Lordship of God in my heart. And Lord, we lay down secondary and inadequate motivations. 
all of those motivations are fueled by my pride and by things that I can control. Father God, I pray that we would surrender ourselves to you today. That you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can know more of you. That you would empower us to know the dimensionless nature of your love. That this is what fuels us because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So Holy Spirit, pour out the love of the Father and the Lordship of the Father in our hearts right now. And if that is you, just respond with amen, Lord. And yes, Lord, this is what I ask of you. Grow this in my heart. I realize that I haven't fully been in that place where that has been my primary motivation. Or I have made secondary motivations primary. And I repent. God, may your lordship and love in my heart and life be what transforms me and what fuels me. Father, I pray for those who are perhaps realizing that they've been quite okay with coming to faith for themselves, but haven't been engaging the path of becoming equipped and prepared to give a defense of our faith to those who ask. And again, in your own time and space, I encourage you to choose a path of preparation. If you haven't already, I guarantee you there will come a time when you hit a crisis of faith. But this is something that you can engage confidently because of the truth that we do have and the person in God that we do have in Christ. And we can wrestle through these things, but let's prepare ourselves for those moments. But let's also prepare ourselves for the sake of those around us. So God give us a greater burden and a greater passion and compassion for those around us who need you so that they too may taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray for anyone in this room who is wrestling and struggling with deep issues of faith. I pray that you'd give them the courage to ask those questions of you directly, like Job did, like Isaiah did, like Habakkuk did. And I pray that you would meet them in that space. And as a consequence, their roots of faith may go even deeper. Father, equip and prepare us with your Holy Spirit. Yes, we equip ourselves, but we don't trust ourselves. We need your power, your gospel, your truth, your leading. Make us attentive to you, Holy Spirit. And finally, God, give us wisdom when we are engaging those who do not know you. Wisdom to care, wisdom to love, wisdom to wait, wisdom to pray. Wisdom to be courageous, wisdom to speak, wisdom to be quiet. God, we need you in this. And Father, as we collectively take steps forward in this, I pray that there would be a impact, that there would be a fruitfulness in the kingdom as a consequence of our stewardship. 
God, I pray that we think marathon, not sprints. This is one sermon, but we all have a lifetime ahead of us of faithfulness. So inspire us, Lord, but sustain us as well. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.